Good evening, and please do be seated. And if you would, kindly keep your Bibles open to that gospel reading from John, John chapter 2. And if you've closed it, it was on page 1057. John chapter 2. And we're going to continue our series through the gospel of John. You also find in the very center of your bulletin an outline on which you can take notes, if you wish. Let's start with prayer. Almighty, holy, merciful, loving God. We thank you that you have given us your word, that we might come to know you, that we might see in it your son and find your salvation. So we pray now you would grant us to understand that word rightly and work in each one of our hearts by your spirit. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be ever acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, dear brothers and sisters, something to ponder perhaps for a moment. Are there times when you feel that your faith in Christ somehow doesn't always seem to live up to your expectations? Are there times, perhaps, when you struggle, when you know you're, you're trying hard to do things Jesus' way, but somehow your life seems to be just as hard and unfair and unfortunate as, as ever it was? Or are there times when you feel like you, you keep praying and believing fervently and, and somehow instead of getting better, you feel that your health, your depression... Your sickness is, it actually seems to be getting worse. Having spent time with many of you over the past few years, I'm, I feel sure that there are at least some of us here today that quite often feel like that. Is that right? Is it perhaps you that has this creeping feeling sometimes of doubt do you sometimes wonder whether following Jesus really does work? Whether you can really expect that Jesus will deliver? Well, if it is you and you, you have this, this worry and this discouragement in your Christian life, then I want to say two things to you. First, I want you to listen very carefully as we open John's Gospel together today. And second, I want you to know that this kind of struggle with our expectations of what faith in Jesus will bring is nothing new. And in fact, if we think about what we've seen so far in John's gospel, you'll realize that, well, the disciples themselves have very high expectations of Jesus. Think about what we've seen so far in chapter 1. In verse 29, we've seen that Jesus is the one who will take away the sins of the world. That is, he will remove the guilt, the judgment, the trespass, everything that separated us from God forever. Verse 41, he is the Messiah, the Christ. Verse 49, he is the Son of God, the King of Israel. And do you see, if he is all of this, if he is God's promised Savior and King, then they're expecting 
that he's about to restore God's kingdom, to bring an age of peace and holiness and perfect blessing, and to rule God's people forever with all the promises and blessings of that kingdom. And you couldn't blame them, could you, if they expected it to come straight away. Yet in today's passage, they're going to have to learn that whilst they are indeed right to expect him to do all these things, he will not do them quite yet. They, like us, are going to have to learn to have right expectations about following Jesus. Especially, may I add, seeing that next week's reading is going to see Jesus start a losing battle with the religious authorities, one that is going to end with him crucified on a cross. Let me show you. This is John chapter 2 and verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, on one level, that's a perfectly ordinary, if unfortunate, situation, isn't it? The bridegroom has underestimated how much demand there would be for wine, and he's going to have to disappoint his guests. Socially, it's a disaster, but it's not the end of the world. Yet at another level, it is also a picture of all that is wrong with Israel. Perhaps if you think back through the scriptures, you might remember that from the time of Moses and right through the prophets, God has been using this picture again and again. He's been using the picture of plentiful wine as a picture of his blessing and a lack of wine as a sign of his curse, as the the wine is cut off. We'll look at just one example. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah and chapter 24. Isaiah chapter 24, the page is 699, Isaiah chapter 24. And you might notice this is the chapter just before our Old Testament reading of Isaiah 25. So Isaiah 24, let me read to you from verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. They've transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. But what does this curse look like? I want you to notice how central wine is to that curse. Verse 7, the wine mourns. The vine languishes and all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is better to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Do you see now what Jesus is doing here? Do you see now that when John says, the wine had run out, they have no wine. It's not just a picture of poor planning. It is, it is a picture of God's ongoing judgment on the world because of sin. 
It is a picture of the curse, the very curse that they are expecting that when the Messiah comes, he will reverse the curse they're expecting him to change into blessing. And so do you see the question now becomes, what will Jesus the Messiah do about this curse of a lack of wine? What can they expect of him? Well, surprisingly, at least initially, they cannot expect anything at all. Woman, what does this have to do with me? He says. What does this have to do with me? Isn't that odd? A lack of wine has got nothing to do with one who apparently has come to solve the curse of lack of wine forever. My hour has not yet come, he says. But what does he mean by my hour has not yet come except that his hour will at some time come? And when it does, this problem of the curse will indeed be to do with him. He will, when his hour comes, reverse the curse. And let me tell you that this coming hour is going to become a theme. As you continue through John's Gospel, we're going to see more and more about this. And first and foremost, it is a theme which is going to find its climax as Jesus dies on the cross, as he takes the curse in our place, as he suffers there for our sins, that he might destroy it and all its effects. However, that's not all that Jesus is teaching here. For having first made it very clear that the hour has not yet come, that it's not yet time for the curse to be reversed, he takes the opportunity to reassure them that yes, he is the Messiah who will end the curse and turn it to blessing. And when he does that, what he does, in a very literal sense, is he replaces that lack of wine with an abundance of wine. He swaps the sign of the curse for the sign of blessing. And this is how it happens. His mother, we read, tells the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them. Which, by the way, is very good instruction for us, isn't it? Do whatever Jesus tells you. And John explains, and this is verse 6, that there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus says, fill the jars with water. And they do. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, he says, which they do. And I see that the master of the feast has got no idea where it's come from, but when he tastes it, well, there is something very special about it. Something so special that he calls the bridegroom, and he says to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Do you see, first of all, it's no longer water, is it? It is now wine. In the place where there was a lack of wine, suddenly wine is in an abundance. And I do mean in abundance. Now, I know that we don't use gallons very much in Malaysia, but let me put it like this. If you wanted to stand there and bottle all of that wine, we're not talking seven or eight bottles. We're not even talking 70 or 80 bottles. We're talking somewhere in the region of 700 or 800 full-size bottles of wine just to hold it. And not only is the wine here abundant, it is really good wine, well-aged wine, better than the best wine that the bridegroom had served at the start. 
wine so good in fact, that our mind should immediately think of Isaiah again. You might remember that after the terrible judgment of a lack of wine in Isaiah 24, we arrive at Isaiah chapter 25, which was our Old Testament reading. And there we find God's promise of an hour that will come when he will set before his people a great feast, including well-aged, well-refined wine. An hour also when he will swallow up death forever and wipe away the tears from all faces. Do you remember what he says? This was verse 6 of Isaiah 25. He says, On this mountain, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a feast of rich food, full of marrow, of well-aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. So do you understand now? Do you see what Jesus is doing there at Cana? He is giving to them a wonderful, glorious sign of his glory, which is yet to come. And that's what verse 11 says, isn't it? This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him there. It's as if he is standing with them in the middle of the curse of Isaiah 24 and showing to them a little tiny picture of the eternal blessing of Isaiah 25. It's as if he is saying to them, yes, you are absolutely right to expect the end of sin and death and curse from me. And look, this is a little tiny glimpse of the great feast that I will set before you in the kingdom of God in that final hour. And do you see, if he is the one who can give them the glimpse, they know they need look nowhere else for the fullness. Yes, they must trust him. Yes, they should trust him for these very things. But they must understand that that blessing is not yet. His hour has not yet come. They're to believe in him, but have right expectations. Well, having seen this, how would we now go about bridging what it meant to those first disciples to what it means to us today? Because we're not quite like the first disciples, are we? In a very real sense, Jesus's hour has come, hasn't it? He has died on the cross. If you remember, he was not just called the Son of God, but also the Lamb of God, the one who had to die as a sacrifice for sin to take away the sin of the world. And that hour has come. But as we look at John's gospel, we realize that even there, he also talks of another hour, an hour even beyond the cross, a future hour, an hour when he promises all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That is to say, he speaks of an hour when he will return, when he will make all things new, when he will fulfill the blessings of Isaiah chapter 25 and bring all his people to the great wedding feast of the Lamb. We heard about that in the reading from Revelation, didn't we? 
And so there is a sense, isn't there, in which we, like the first disciples, we too are awaiting a future hour that has not yet come. A future hour when every promise of Christ will be fully and finally fulfilled in glory. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so if that is the case, what applications can we draw for ourselves now? What will it mean for us today to, like them, to believe in him with right expectations of following him? And I want to start with a negative. What is it that we should not expect from Jesus right here and right now? As we've seen, there, there are things that Jesus will bring, but he does not bring yet. Things we can hope for in the kingdom of God, but we should not presume he will give to us now. I'm going to put it a little bit strongly and so you see what I mean and then I'll soften it later. If we're expecting that perhaps this evening Jesus will spread before us a great feast of fine foods and well-aged wine before his return, then actually our expectations of life following him are wrong. He will do that, but those things belong to the hour yet to come. And if we think in the same way, perhaps this is also what leads to many of our own struggles and disappointments following Jesus, isn't it? Should we expect, should we presume that Jesus will be miraculously healing our physical or our mental health if we trust in him? Should that be what we presume he will be doing? Well, in one sense, yes, we are right. We are right to expect him to heal us in those in every way. But we are wrong if we presume that he will do so here and now, rather than on the day of resurrection. He may heal us now. We should pray for healing now. But we must not presume it as if he had promised that he will do so. Because if we do, we may get very disappointed at him for not doing something he never promised to do. We may even start to doubt him or our faith itself. Similarly, should we presume that Jesus is going to protect us from sorrow and mourning today? Or that he will defeat our enemies and, or that he will change our poverty into plenty today? Or that he will wipe every tear from our eyes today? Or that if we follow all that he teaches in the workplace, that our boss will start to treat us rightly and our customers will pay their bills and, uh, and people won't be rude or abusive to us anymore. Well, as hard as it sounds, I want to say the answer is no. We should not presume on Jesus to do any of those things today. That is not unless today is a day he returns in glory. Yes, he will do all those things, but the hour for that has not yet come. It will come, but it is not yet. And I don't want to see you disappointed if he does not do what he has not promised to do. Dear brothers and sisters, we are to believe in him, Firmly, boldly, and strongly, 
but let's have right expectations as we do. So if we can't look for all of those things now, what can we look to him for today? The big thing that we look for him today are the sure and certain promises he gives us for the age to come. Just as his disciples there at Cana, they saw the sign that pointed to his future glory and they believed, we too know that if we have Christ today, then we will share in the glories of that kingdom to come. We know if we have him today that through his death we have forgiveness of sins through the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And these promises, my dear brothers and sisters, these promises today should give us hope, hope and strength to persevere in faith, even in the face of sickness or poverty or death or persecution, even if they never go away till he returns. But we know he does return. What does St. Paul say? He speaks of that hope we have, saying hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we hope for it with patience. I remember that he says in that very same place that he gives us the promise that neither tribulation, nor distress, nor persecution, nor famine, nor nakedness, nor danger, nor sword can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. But nowhere does he promise us that we will not have to endure those things now, in this present life, before we enter into the incomparable glories of the age to come. Just like Jesus, who trod the very same path of suffering before he entered into glory. And then finally, my dear brothers and sisters, what are those things which we can look for him in the future, those things we hope in for the age to come? Well, I want you to know that we can confidently expect that when he comes again, he will indeed reverse sin and the curse entirely, just like he has been picturing in his signs the way he changed water into wine, the way, way he changed the, raised the dead to life, the way he healed the sick to health, the glimpses of his glory and the transfiguration, you can fully expect that all that is evil and wicked in this present world will pass away and he will make all things new forever. You can fully expect that when his hour comes, he will spread a feast before us, of fine foods and well-aged wine at the marriage feasts of the Lamb. You can be certain that on that day he will heal us. He will heal every one of his people of every single disease. He will heal us from all pain, from all suffering, from every disability, entirely and forever. And not only that, you can be certain that on that day he will give us new life, eternal life in its abundance, when he swallows up, as Isaiah said, death forever, and we will neither die nor mourn anymore. Best of all, you can expect with a certainty that he will dwell with us, and we will see the fullness of his glory face to face 
where the Lord will comfort us from every sorrow and wipe away the tears we would never need to cry again. All of this he has promised you. All these are certain and sure. When the hour comes, he will not disappoint. So my dear brothers and sisters, let us be boldly believing in him who at Cana turned water into wine. Let us be filled with wonderful expectations of the hour of his kingdom. But let us have right expectations about what it means to follow him now as we await his return in glory. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the wonders of your love and mercy towards us, for the sending of your own Son, that he might die as the Lamb of God to take away our sins. We give you thanks that we have in him by faith a sure and a certain promise of the kingdom to come, of an end of the curse, an end of wickedness, an end of suffering, an end of death forever, and the joy of your eternal presence. So we pray you would stir up the strength of our hope in your promises in him, and help us to endure faithfully all the struggles and sufferings of this present age as we await his return and the kingdom of grace and glory. Amen.